Well, good morning. My name is Amy, and I'm the executive pastor here. And it's good to be worshiping together this very rainy spring morning. It's so good to have our rector Liz back to worship with us. Uh, it's just a joy to be together. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would take my words and make them your words. Father, would your spirit move in and among us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, kids, um, I was thinking about you guys this morning, and I was curious what kinds of stories you have been reading throughout this pandemic. I was curious who the good and the evil characters are, and if there's magic in these stories, what is this magic like? What is the good magic like and what is the bad magic like? Because I was thinking about how my son and I have been listening to so many audiobooks over the past year. We have just been immersing ourselves in these fantasy worlds. Right now we're listening to The Fellowship of the Ring. And whether it's in Middle Earth or in Narnia or at Hogwarts or wherever, what all of these imaginary worlds seem to have in common is that there are two kinds of magic at play. So there's the kind of magic that the villains use. And this is this magic that is intended to make them powerful, is supposed to give them control over other people. But it's also this magic that often has these unintended consequences. It often ends up controlling the one who wanted to control it. And that magic works a lot like the pagan idols that Paul is talking about in this chapter. And he talks about all through his letter to the Corinthians. These things that promise power, but that actually end up demanding more and more of the people who worship them. And then there's the magic in these stories of the heroes. There's the magic of Aslan and Gandalf. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. This more powerful, ancient magic that doesn't so much control as give. And the people who wield it aren't in charge of it, they just receive it. And through all these stories that we've been listening to, we keep discovering again and again that this magic is actually love. This is a love that sacrifices and gives of itself. It's a love that's more powerful than death. Well, I was thinking about these stories as I prepared to preach today and as I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8, because as I said, there's this contrast between this good magic and bad magic, and you kind of get a sense for that in 1 Corinthians. You get this contrast between the God who loves and gives, who is worthy of our worship, and then these idols that demand and take. And Paul asks the Corinthian believers to think really carefully about whose table they are sitting at, whether they are worshiping in the presence of this giving God or these taking idols. So let's get into this chapter. This is the midpoint of the book of 1 Corinthians. So we are halfway there together. 
And ever since chapter seven, so last week, Paul has kind of taken a turn in the letter. And what he's doing now is he is specifically responding to a letter that the Corinthians have sent to him. We know that because right at the start of chapter seven, he said, now I'm going to answer all the questions that you wrote me about. And so when you get together in your small groups and you're actually looking at the text on the page, you'll probably notice that for the rest of the letter, there's a lot of quotation marks because Paul is actually going to quote back to the Corinthians things that they wrote to him. And he's going to talk about them. Or you'll see him say over and over and over now concerning blank, now concerning this, now concerning that. And that's our clue that Paul is talking to them about something they've already talked to him about. And that's what's happening here in chapter eight. They have just sent him a letter with so many questions about how to live, how to think about ethics and life and hard choices. And Paul is just going to respond to them one by one. So chapter eight begins now concerning food sacrifice to idols. He's saying, okay, Corinth, let's talk about that question you asked me about meat sacrifice to idols. And this part of 1 Corinthians is actually much longer than just this page. It's going to last for three whole chapters. And Paul isn't going to wrap it up until chapter 10, which we won't get to for a few more weeks. Spoiler alert. Liz is preaching on this, but she gave me permission just to tell you this little tidbit. At the conclusion of Paul's whole long argument in chapter 10, his final take on this idle meat question is don't. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Yes, you have the freedom and the right to do so, but don't do it. It's a bad idea. Don't. So Paul actually has a really strong take on this issue, but he takes his time getting there. He doesn't just forbid it out of hand and move on the way he did with some things earlier in the book. In chapter five, he said, don't commit this flagrant sexual immorality. Boom, he moves on. In chapter six, he talked for a few verses about these kinds of trivial lawsuits. Don't do that. And then he moves on. But this question of idle food is a little bit more complicated. And so he spends more time on it. They've asked him a lot about it and he's gonna walk with them through all their questions. So we're actually gonna walk with them. It's like we're eavesdropping on this conversation between Paul and the Corinthians. And we're gonna get to hear how he reasons his way through this really tricky ethical decision how he connects it to who they are and what they believe about God. And that way, by the time we get to the end of his long argument, we don't just have another thing to go on our list of stuff not to do. We've got something much more helpful. We have walked with Paul through this whole process of figuring out how to live, how to make a tough ethical choice, in light of who God is and what Jesus has done and who we are. Which is great because none of us are dealing with the issue of food sacrificed in pagan temples today. But we are all facing really tough ethical choices, things that Paul could never have imagined. 
And so Paul's words are going to help us navigate those. They're going to point us toward the reality that we are loved by God, that we are people that Christ died for, that our lives are not our own to do what we want with, that we are called to a life of love. So just a little bit of background on this food sacrifice to idols issue. This was a really big deal in Corinth and all through the Greco-Roman empire. And if you remember, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So not to Jewish people, but to pagans, to people who spent all of their pre-Christian lives worshiping in these temples of idolatry. This was just part of the air that they breathed. And in these pagan temples, there were all sorts of idols, and these idols represented all these different gods. And then there are all these rituals designed to keep the gods happy to get what you wanted from them. So to get healing from something, to get victory in a battle, to get revenge on someone, whatever you needed, there were rituals for appeasing these idols so that the gods could give you what you wanted. And of course, one kind of ritual was animal sacrifice. People would sacrifice animals. They would present the food to these idols, like little statues or images of the gods. And then the temple would process the meat from that animal sacrifice. That was like the main sort of butcher operation in ancient Corinth. And then that meat was available for eating in these temple meals. They had kind of a courtyard area and it was almost like a precursor to a restaurant. Wealthy people spent a lot of time at these temple meals and the meat that they would eat had been processed as like a byproduct of this idol worship in the temple. This was something that the wealthy Corinthians in the church would have been participating in all the time. They would eat meat a lot and this would be a big part of their, just the social air they breathe, kind of like a country club, sort of, kind of. I couldn't really think of a modern day equivalent, but this is where they would go to celebrate birthdays or someone's healing or you know someone's promotion. It's where they would go for networking. It was their social space. And so this issue of idol meat, just like so many of these other issues we've looked at in the Corinthian church, it has this socioeconomic aspect to it. There are the strong in Corinth who are the wealthy Corinthians, and they have a sophisticated theological argument, this intellectual knowledge that they think justifies what they're doing. And then there are the weak, who are the people who are too poor to eat meat who don't go and eat at the temple maybe, but like once or twice a year when some big festival happens and the meal is open to all. And so this issue of idol meat falls along these weak and strong, poor and rich, knowledgeable and foolish lines once again in the Corinthian church. And just like Paul has done all along, at the end of the day, he is going to throw his lot in with the weak, with the foolish. That is who Paul is elevating in this Corinthian church. So let's see what he says. 
Reading in verse one, and here's one of those quotations where Paul is quoting Corinth back to them. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And what is this knowledge? Well, Paul quotes them again in verses four and eight. It's the knowledge that an idol has no real existence and there's no God but one and food won't bring us close to God. In other words, the Corinthians have written to him saying, hey, what is the big deal? We all know, right, that these idols, these gods are not real. We know there's only one God, right? And that these sacrifices are just like putting food in front of a little statue. There's nothing to it. And Paul is saying, yeah, you're right. Your theology is good. Your knowledge is right. But the Christian life is about more than knowing the right things. It's about more than having the right knowledge. It's about love. Paul tells them that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the way they are using this knowledge is not building up their brothers and sisters. It's actually destroying them. So in verse seven, Paul starts to correct them. He says, actually, we don't all possess this knowledge. Some of your brothers and sisters in the church, the weak, they're not as convinced as you are that this all amounts to nothing, that it's totally meaningless. To them, this isn't just setting some food in front of a statue. It is this powerful pull back to their old way of life. It's this temptation back into idolatry that they have been rescued from, that Christ died to rescue them from. And so Paul says, take care that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat the food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ died. Paul saying, if the weak see you eating in the temple like it's no big thing, they are going to be tempted to do the same thing. You are luring them back into this pagan idolatry that could destroy them instead of building them up. And this becomes even clearer a few chapters later when Paul concludes this argument once and for all. When he says in chapter 10, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Food isn't anything, idols aren't anything, but what happens in the temple is a sacrifice to demons and you can't participate in that. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul says, yes, idols are just worthless statues. They are not God, but that doesn't mean they don't hold power. The Christian life is not just about the way you think and the things you know. It is about where you show up with your body. It's about the things you participate in. It's about your habits. It's about what you worship. You can't feast for long at the tables of pagan worship without being formed by them in some way. 
not because those statues are real, but because habits shape you. Your worship shapes you. Your community shapes you. The tables that you eat at shape you and form you. So take it seriously. Understand idolatry's power to shape you and flee from it. So what do we do with this? Because we don't have the same temple system that they had in ancient Corinth. But what are the places where we are drawn into temples of idolatry? Well, as I thought about that this week, I thought of lots of examples, and you could probably think of your own examples. But one that seemed very real to me is our online temple. It's a pretty large temple in our world. And this online temple is a place that its whole architecture is curated and crafted for us. It's according to our desires. And when we enter the online world, we are met by these powerful algorithms, the closest things to false gods and idols that I can think of. We bring to these algorithms our fears, our anxieties, the things that we wish we could control. And in response, they give us an endless supply of content, an endless supply of knowledge that helps us feel in control. Knowledge, which is the very thing that Paul keeps warning Corinth about because it puffs us up. And just like the Corinthians, we can say of our online world, of social media, of wherever we spend our time in the internet, we can say that's not the real world. It's not real life. That's all just virtual and fake. And yet that's not true. We know that the more time we spend in online temples, the more we feed on its food, whether it's the 24 hour news cycle, whether it's our preferred political ideology, whether it's curated you know, lifestyle content just for us or our social media platforms, even theology online, this temple pulls us into idolatry and it forms us. And the more puffed up with knowledge, we are in danger of becoming as we spend time there. The more our words become words that tear down and destroy instead of building up in love. I think we're really wise to pay attention to the time we spend online, the places where we feed ourselves online, to notice where we are being formed as people who love and who build up and where we're being formed into people who destroy. And if we need to, we might have to flee. I can say personally that I have this like love-hate on again, off again thing with Twitter. I feel like all the other social media platforms are sort of whatever, I don't care. And I, I give up on following the news after a few clicks, but there's something about Twitter that like pulls me in in a deep, addictive way. 
And I'm forever canceling my account and then thinking, oh, I can handle this and just wading back in and then realizing, oh, I cannot handle this. And the longer I feed on Twitter, the less loving of a person I become. So I wonder what your Twitter might be. Maybe it's Twitter. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's Instagram or CNN or Fox News or the New York Times or online shopping, whatever it may be, I just invite you to pay attention and to be in conversation with God about it. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The Christian life is not so much about what we know, about knowing the right things about God, but about being known by God. That is something that algorithms and idols can't do, no matter how much they promise to. They cannot really know us, and they definitely cannot love us. But God does. God loves each one of us. And God died to rescue us from the grip of empty idolatry so that we could live lives of love. And God is calling us to eat at his table with his people, to live in a way that builds up his people in love. He's cautioning us to tend to our habits, to pay attention to where we feed and who we are becoming. He's inviting us like Frodo and Sam to shore up all of our courage and all of our strength to resist the pull of what is false and destructive and to venture deeper and deeper into the country of his love. Amen.